The financial crisis of 2008 rocked the world. Institutions collapsed, economies tottered on the brink. In the UK, the Royal Bank of Scotland fell. The government had to step in and bail the bank out. My guest today wrote a book called Shredded about the bank's failure. Although triggered by the September 2008 bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers, it was largely the consequence of its pursuit of scale for its own sake. Listen to Ian's story of how he came to write the book. He describes how RBS became a rogue institution with few qualms about mis-selling financial products, pursuit of profit, a cavalier disregard for the law, and a warped idea of its own financial skills and strength. Hear about the lessons the whole financial services industry can learn from the bank that broke Britain. That's all right here in episode 94 of the Marketing, Protection and Finance podcast. Welcome. You're listening to the podcast for financial services professionals looking to share business ideas and inspiration in the world of marketing, protection and finance. So let's get on with the show. And here's your host, Roger Edwards. Welcome to the Empath Podcast. I'm Roger Edwards, a marketing guy from Edinburgh, talking to a wide range of guests about marketing topics and issues and stories from the world of protection and finance. Thanks for downloading or streaming the show. I really appreciate your support. I'm very excited about today's interview with Ian Fraser. I've known Ian for many years. In fact, when I was marketing director at Bright Grey and Scottish Provident, Ian was my go-to person for media training. Ian is a journalist and broadcaster specialising in corporate finance, financial services and economic analysis. A contributor to the FT, Sunday Times, Sunday Herald and numerous other titles, Ian wrote the definitive account of the rise and fall of the Royal Bank of Scotland in his book Shredded, Inside RBS, The Bank That Broke Britain. And it's the story behind the book that we're going to dive deep into today, right here on the Marketing, Protection and Finance podcast. Ian Fraser, welcome to the Empath podcast. Hi, Roger. How are you doing this morning, Ian? Oh, very well. It's a slightly grey day uh, here in Middle Adian, but it's still very, it's, it's not raining, so we can't complain. It actually makes a change to talk to somebody on the podcast who's actually in Scotland. Most of my, <laughs> most of my guests, I, I'm, I'm Skyping them down in, um, in London or the Cotswolds or Penzance or something like that. So it's nice to speak to somebody who's nearer to home. Ian, you've written uh, a fascinating book about the Royal Bank of Scotland. It's called Shredded, a biography of the bank that broke Britain. And that's a book that I'd really like to deep dive into today. But before we get to that, Ian, give everybody a little bit of background about yourself, where you came from, where you're going, and what your ambitions are, and basically what makes Ian Fraser tick. Okay, well, I was born in Edinburgh. I went to school at Edinburgh University in St Andrews. Then then I had a bit of a false start because I got into the advertising industry Okay, and I worked for ad, in, ad agencies in Edinburgh, London and Paris. I, I did enjoy it but it was basically it wasn't really the metier or the profession for me. Mm-hmm. After about five years in that I decided to try and fulfill my original goal which was to become a, a journalist. My, my original 
write writings or you know articles were all to do with the industry which I just left, which was advertising. Right. So I, I I was writing for the Daily Telegraph and I was writing for the for Campaign, which was so called the the ad man's bible, right. and that was actually very exciting at that time. After I quit writing about the ad industry, I joined a magazine called Euro Business as assistant editor, and that magazine was basically much more general. It was covering business from all angles, including finance you know, distribution, marketing, IT, etc. Mm-hmm. Really enjoyed that because it actually gave, put, put, put me in touch with um, people in 26 countries around Europe. We had correspondence in 26 countries around Europe. Okay. And it was an, an exciting time too because there was something called the single European market that was just being created in 92. And this also was causing a bit of transformation in the way business was operating. And, and I enjoyed that, but unfortunately that magazine went bust. Then I started to work for... Strangely enough, Unilever, right. editing their in-house magazines, and that was a good job because it basically sent me around the world to far-flung outposts of the Unilever empire, in places like China, Vietnam, South America, USA, and parts of Europe. In some ways, it was it was a good education because I was having to get really into the nuts and bolts of how these businesses operated. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't a vanity publication. It was a proper management title that went into you know the, the P&L and, and the performance and how they um, how they were managing their different units. After Unilever, I uh, joined a magazine called Director, which was published by the Institute of Directors, and I was the acting editor of that um, for a couple of years. In 1999, I left London and left the Institute, left a Director magazine, and I helped to launch a new paper called the Sunday Herald, which um, was being launched by Scottish Media Group in Glasgow. So that was a huge change in my career and brought the family up from London to Edinburgh. And actually, that's how I almost got into writing about focusing on financial services by default, because it hadn't been my goal to focus specifically on financial services. And in fact, it wasn't a subject I had particularly focused on until 99, although it obviously played a part of things that I'd written. And I think I was still very naive at that point about banking, um, fund management, insurance, um, hedge funds, etc. You know, I didn't, I didn't really know, I didn't really understand the, the, how these sectors operated. Mm-hmm. Um, so Andrew Jaspin, the editor of, of uh, Sunday Herald, actually probably did me a favor when he told me or instructed me that I was going to be the financial editor instead of the business editor of the new paper. And that meant two things. It meant you know, one, I was entirely focused on finance, financial services, and two, it meant I was based in Edinburgh, not Glasgow. But I, actually, it was a fascinating time. You know, that was 99. RBS was taking over NatWest within a year of me starting. We had the biggest takeover in banking history yeah. on our doorstep when both RBS and Bank of Scotland were, were fighting to the death, more or less, to acquire NatWest. So it was, a, you know, that was an amazing transaction to cover. It was really not until about 2008 when I really began to understand, you know, what the banks had been doing wrong, which was they had been losing sight of their core purpose, to, which is to allocate capital efficiently. And they had also been um, losing sight of, you know, their capital and liquidity. They were incredibly badly managed, which I'm sorry to say that between the period of 99 to 07, when it started to unravel, I, I hadn't really been fully aware of. I probably hadn't done enough deep dive, deep, deep deep investigation into their fundamental business business model, nor had the investment analysts, 
nor had the regulator, the FSA, nor had the Bank of England. So I don't feel that guilty if all those other bodies were incapable of spotting the problems either. It's quite an interesting progression, actually, if you think about it, Ian, because what you said is earlier on when you were when you were managing the Unilever magazine, yes. that, that was doing quite a lot of deep diving into P&L, you mentioned, and you were looking yes. at financial statements. Then I guess you, you helped to uh, start the, the Herald newspaper in Scotland. Quite a lot of the topics that tend to get written in the in the mainstream media probably don't dive deep into the financial affairs of companies it maybe just focuses on a product or a campaign or or, or something that's happening maybe even a, a scandal at board level but not yes. actually deep diving into the financial PL. so i suppose no. over that period from 99 to 2007 it was a, a a period of realization for you when you started to see what was happening underneath the surface and, yes. and was there a, was there a point when maybe there was a seed sown it was just after royal bank of scotland completed its abn amro acquisition mm-hmm. in november 2007 and the period between then and when it did its rights issue for 12 billion in um, which was the largest rights issue in history yeah. at the time um, I think that's when I was beginning to, you know, be more conscious of the precariousness of some of these large institutions. Although I have to say, even the, the accounts were so opaque and, and they were so, they looked so strong. You know, when, when you looked at the accounts and the balance sheet uh, of RBS, even if you looked at the ones published in February 2008, that, it, that it, was, it was hard to predict the entire institution was going to collapse by October 2008. Mm-hmm. And, and whereas when HBOS failed in um, September 2008 and had to be rescued by Lloyds, I was not that surprised. I, wa- I was actually slightly more surprised when Bill Jameson, who was the uh, executive editor of The Scotsman, phoned me up soon after that and said he said he thought RBS was going to was going to go down too within the, within the next few weeks you know I really didn't think it was that bad I also felt that they they had reassured people when they'd raised their 12 billion in April 2008 that they had promised they had sufficient working capital or they had um, indicated in their uh, rice issue prospectus that they had sufficient working capital to survive uh, on a standalone basis for the next 12 months and of course for me, working in the financial services industry, and I'm acutely aware of the fact that the public, on the whole, has a pretty dim view of financial services in general and banking in particular. Yes. And obviously all of these things that you un- uncovered in your time as a journalist really just reinforce that and perhaps, yes. bring it, perhaps bringing it back to the book. So the book's called Shredded. It's inside RBS, the bank that broke Britain. And you, you've got some phenomenal reviews. Um, I mean, the first review, um, a gripping account, RBS was a rogue business operating what became a rogue industry with the connivance of government. Read it and weep. And then the, the aforementioned uh, Bill Jameson that you mentioned there from The Scotsman, a model of the journalist craft, Zola-esque in its broad and unsparing study of corporate hubris and nemesis and haunting in the questions it leaves in its wake. I mean, this is really dark stuff. <laughs> So I like that one. So, yeah. so Ian, you, you obviously uncovered a lot of stuff that was going on within the financial services industry. You decided that you wanted to write this book yeah. on RBS, look at what Fred Goodwin did, look at how the bank 
broke Britain, as you say. What was mm. the process that you went through? Because I imagine there was quite a lot of people uh, who probably didn't want to talk to you about this. And then on the other yeah. side of the corner, I imagine there's quite a lot of people who did want to um, tell you everything that was happening. Yeah. So what's the process that you go through to write such a, actually, a, such a long book about okay. such quite a, t- a, a tricky topic? I, I had always wanted to write a book, but it didn't necessarily have to be about RBS. I had the pro- we had the project ready. You know, we'd written what's called a proposal, which okay. includes a sample chapter and a break, um, structure of the book and reasons why it might be popular and those sorts of things. And we took we took that to other publishers, and one of the publishers was enthusiastic, uh, which is a, a publisher in Edinburgh called Berlin. And we signed a contract in August 2012. Had to do fresh interviews with people, uh, all, all the relevant uh, people, and yeah. probably find about another 50 people who were either involved with RBS directly or indirectly as advisors. And I think one of the one of my achievements was to persuade um, a lot of the senior ones, including George Mathewson, who was chairman of RBS till April 06 and was its chief exec from 91 till uh, 2000 to be interviewed. He was also the man who appointed Fred Goodwin. It was quite a laborious process because some of these interviews would go on. In one instance, there was probably with the same former exec director of RBS, there were three five-hour interviews. Wow. Then the, the transcribing of those interviews actually takes at least four times as long as, as the interviews themselves. So, yeah, basically, in the end of the day, I'd, com- I'd, I'd compiled what I believe was enough information to write uh, a fairly definitive account of what had happened inside RBS. From about 92, which is when George Mathewson became the, the boss, through to uh, the time I finished writing, which was basically April 2014. Okay. Um, so so the, the two main themes are from 91, when the bank was virtually bust and, and in real trouble, to the peak hubris of the, the NatWest takeover in March 2000. That was a period of trying to rebuild it, but the way in which that was done was arguably flawed, because mm-hmm. it was too obsessed with selling and uh, with stripping out branch, ma- you know, lo- local fiefdoms in mm. terms of branch managers and, reg- and, and, and regional managers. And then there was the, the, the Fred Goodwin years, which were from March 2000 through to October 08, when basically, I would argue, uh, the bank was, was, was to a large extent out of control, certainly on, uh, in terms of corporate, um, commercial property lending and acquisitions. You know, culminating obviously in the utterly insane ABN Amri acquisition mm-hmm. of uh, of April two thousand and seven, and then you've got the bailout when it was rescued from insolvency by us, the taxpayers, in October eight, through to uh, today, when is when there's a period of, of basically flawed attempts to revive a a zombie institution, none of which have yet worked. Those two sections are quite interesting, and and there are a couple of things that occur to me straight away from listening to you talk about those, and it. And it does beg beg the question as well, when you wrote the book, what was the ultimate aim? Did you want people to read this to say, this is what we definitely shouldn't do um, if we're running a financial institution, and these are the lessons that need to be learned by the establishment and by other senior management teams, or did you have another aim for that? But the, the, the couple of things that did occur to me when you were saying that is that in the first section, there was too much focus on sales, yes. and, and, and the sales, and, and again, I'm very much in the... Um, uh, as a marketeer and, and very much in the in the digital world that we live in now, I, I feel that uh, engagement 
and, and actually having a positive relationship with customers is definitely the way to go. And, yes. I, and I hate it when people sell to me. So that, that, that selling mentality, certainly it resonates with me that is not good corporate Yeah, well, I describe sense. how under something called Project Columbus, uh -huh. which started in about 93 or 94, they took away the credit decisions from the local branches so and and they 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 centralised that at uh, South Gyle in Edinburgh, Younger yeah. House, I think it's called. That that was you know part of the process of, uh, and, and that that enabled them to actually ch transform the branches into what I would call retail outlets. Yes, they had to sell more personal loans, more mortgages, more a PPI, more more other products. I think I quote um, Mathewson in some of the speeches that he gave. You know, just describing how how they had to basically get a bigger share of wallet and capitalize on the uh, on their share of the current account market by mm -hmm. by by persuading current account holders to take out additional products with uh, with RBS and I'm not saying this was necessarily evil you know this was this was a it was a commercial decision <laughs> but I think maybe the way in which it was done uh, was wrong and 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 the the absolute I mean the absolute focus on um, on, on bottom line, I think, was, was, was a key driver of some of this, mm -hmm. that RBS had become the first Scottish PLC to, to achieve profits of over a billion. And, you know, obviously that is an achievement, but um, I think the, the overall theme, I, I think, to this, this, this time was that the, the bank was in real trouble in 91. It was nearly bust because yeah. it had overlent in the Lawson boom of the late 80s. And it had had to pick up the pieces from that, and it had it instituted a new approach to, to doing that, which is um, to turn its uh, restructuring and recovery team in, in the corporate side and commercial property side into a profit center. Right. So, so they were they were focused on trying to make as much money as they could out of distress, and 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 some bad practices came into uh, the mix at that point. I would argue. Overall, I think he made a pretty impressive attempt to rebuild it, and he did rebuild it to the extent that it was in a position to acquire NatWest in '99. But the way in which he did it, I think, still needs to, you know, there are certain questions that still need to be asked. And of course, again, I'm, I'm going back to that. I think the public don't like being sold to. They yes. certainly don't want to be sold to by financial institutions that they don't trust. And I think the big lesson for me here is that the way forward for financial institutions, whether it's banks, whether it's insurance companies, whether it's financial advisors, is to create a positive relationship with a customer, get them to know you, get them to like you, and most of all, get them to trust you before you start having these conversations about whether this product or that product or that service is is something that we should transact together. And the second part, the second part of, yes. the, of the Royal Bank of Scotland journey that you described there was the, the out of control phase, yes. know, the irresponsible lending, the irresponsible um, expansion. What were yes. the main, what were the main lessons that came from that one, Ian? Well, I think that if you go for scale alone, which is basically what Goodwin was doing, then you, you're cruising for bruising. You know, yeah. if you're totally obsessed with being the largest bank in the world, which he more or less stated was his goal um, in the immediate aftermath of the NatWest purchase, which was in March 2000, and, and you don't care, you know, whether or not the way in which you're achieving that scale is flawed. For example, you know, I'll just give one example. He bought a bank called Charter One in um, in Cleveland, Ohio, um, which is in the Rust Belt. You know, it's near Chicago. Um, it was in the heart of subprime 
uh, territory. Subprime was already becoming a significant force in the U.S. Uh, housing market, subprime lending. And he paid, or he, he and his board agreed to pay 10.6 billion U.S. dollars for a bank which has now been proven to be worthless right. for Charter One. So that looks good on the balance sheet. You know, you have supposed assets of whatever, which which mean, you, you know, you can look good and, and you look big and you, you've grown. But actually, they turn to die. The risk is that you haven't done your due diligence and he hadn't. And or if he had seen evidence of problems, he had turned a blind eye. And you end up with an asset that that turns to dust within uh for three years, which mm-hmm. is what happened. So that's just you know one example out of many. The obsession with rapid growth meant he took some really, really, really bad decisions between, particularly since he completed the integration of NatWest in '03, and the ultimate uh, collapse of RBS in October of '08. And how does this mindset develop, Ian? Did you get a feel for that as you were as you were writing the book and as you were interviewing everybody? It's through everybody? hubris. I mean, it's extreme arrogance and self-delusion. Mm-hmm. One of the issues with Fred Goodwin was that, that he had no cultural hinterland. He he rose like Icarus, you know, through the ranks of Deloitte, through the um, through the ranks of uh, Clydesdale for a year, and then to the giddy heights of uh, finance director of RBS, and ultimately chief executive of RBS. And I think his mind, to some extent, became unhinged after the NatWest acquisition. Right. Because all the media, including the FT, including Harvard Business Review, including Forbes and Fortune, were singing his praises to the heavens between the completion of that deal on Valentine's Day uh, 2000 and his completion of the integration, so-called, of that deal in, in 03, yeah. as if he was like God's gift to banking. Now, there was a particular incident which I, I describe in the book, which happened in December 02, when Forbes decided to put him on their cover and make him Global Business Leader of the Year 2003. And one of his most senior advisors, who works in the city of London and was there to, to try to, to, to communicate how shareholders were feeling about the performance of RBS. He, that guy, and I, I can't name him, but he's totally plugged in to the city and how shareholders perceive the company. That's his job as house broker. Mm-hmm. And so he, his job was like, say, Fred, well, hey, there is some concern that you're doing deals that are, you know, not, uh, that seem unwise, that you're not, you know, you're not getting a, a sufficient return on that you're basically overpaying for crap mm-hmm. type of thing. That's the type of thing he, he might have told Fred Goodwin, right? right. From the moment that, that Forbes put Fred on the cover and uh, d- and described him as the global business leader of the year, Fred would not speak to this chap, not once. Mm-hmm. He, he, he didn't want to talk to anyone. He didn't want to talk to anyone below the rank of prime minister, governor of, cent- of a central bank, monarchy, or or possibly, you know, one or two others. He might deign to speak to the chairman or chief executive of a, of a regulator if they weren't being too, pes- too, too, too interfering. So, you know, he became supremely arrogant from that point. He thought he, he could do what he wanted. And, and the shareholders and the media and the regulators and the government are all equally guilty, in my view, mm-hmm. in, 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 in not spotting the issues here. Although, to be fair to the regulator, it did. The FSA did, and it tried to intervene. It tried to put people on to, to sit on the RBS board 
in October 2004 as not spies, but, you know, as observers. Yeah. And it tried to do interviews on a one to one basis with the nine non-executive directors of RBS at that point. And it was blocked, A, by the bank itself, but also by Gordon Brown, who was then the chancellor. It's, it's, it's fascinating to hear you talk about this. And, and again, you can look at other not just financial institutions, other big companies. And you could almost see the same sort of um, issues being replicated. There comes a point where the customer ceases to matter, if it ever did. Yes. And, and the hubris, is, that you mentioned before, the ego takes over. And from that, yes. po- and from that point on, uh, the company could actually be doomed. Yes, I think that's the danger. And I think probably from O2, RBS was. And, and, and actually the board were hopeless, utterly hopeless. The board was led at that point by George Matheson and they knew the Charter One deal was extremely poor and they knew that investors were furious with Fred for having overpaid for crap but they they didn't do enough to rein him in. They contemplated firing Fred Goodwin in uh, the second half of 05 and they came pretty close to to doing so but they, they, they bottled it at the last minute because they were scared of Fred. By the way, one point I would add here is that one shouldn't personalize it entirely on Fred Goodwin. Mm-hmm. There, there was a whole culture around banking at this time, you know, the loads of other people similar to Fred Goodwin doing equally bad things in other banks. We shouldn't just personalise it on Fred. I, I suppose what we're doing is we're saying that there's a there's a mindset and there's yeah. a personality type that obviously became quite strong, very strong in, in this sort of environment. So going, yes. back, going back to the, the thought and the question that I had earlier, when you wrote the book and obviously charted all of these things that had happened, did you have an outcome that you wanted? Did you want people to read this book and say, okay, here's a blueprint of how not to run a financial services company and ultimately if, we've, if we know how not to, then that gives us some pointers as to how a, a good financial service company should be run, focus on customer, etc., etc. Or was it really just an account of the decline, the the rise and decline of, of RBS? Well, I mean, I... I'd, of course, I want lessons to be learned. You know, this is this was a, a collapse which has had ca- catastrophic consequences for the UK economy, which we still we still haven't fully recovered from it. So I felt um, I felt people really ought to know why the bank had failed. What were, what were the, the the internal decisions and um, uh, policies and processes which uh, which caused its collapse? Because uh, you know, I think the general public. Uh, should know that, but I, but I also, of course, that of course, I felt there were lessons to be learned, and I felt, you know, perhaps they hadn't been learned enough. And unless you know why it failed and what what were the strategies, policies, processes, culture inside the bank which caused it to collapse, then obviously it's impossible for lessons to be learned. Mm-hmm. But I would say that one of the most heartening things that I had after writing the book came in um, in July 2014 just a month after it was published, when I I had this from an RBS insider. He sent me an email, congratulations on your book on RBS. David Stephen, the chief risk officer of Royal Bank of Scotland, has included it among his recommended books for the summer, that summer of 2014. On the the intranet, David Stephen, chief risk officer, writes, a fascinating and uncomfortable view, compelling reading. The depth of research is clear so too is the depth of thinking that has gone into the views and conclusions that he has drawn. Space. It is crucial that we shape our forward approach to risk management with lessons of the past. This will give you many insights that will help. Close quote. So that was from the Chief Risk Officer of Royal Bank of Scotland, David Stephen, who's an Australian, who was appointed uh, one year prior to that, e- that message being sent. 
And I think that was quite heartening. It shows that even inside RBS, it is being read and they are hopefully to some extent learning from it. Also, there's a Blackwell's branch in the RBS campus at Gogoburn. Uh-huh. I spoke to the guy who manages that not long ago, and he said it's uh, it's very much very prominently on on show and is still selling extremely well in that branch. Since since the um, the, the financial crisis of two thousand and eight and the the fall of RBS and and the the way the economy's changed, governments bailing out banks, etc., more regulation, etc. Do you see any companies that are like the complete opposite of the way RBS was? Are, are there any companies out there which you would hold up to the light and say, "Yep, these guys know what they're doing. They may have learned lessons from the bad things from the past, but are there any any companies that you would say, "Yep, this is the way it should be done." In in banking, I'd say the one that stands out for me is Handelsbanken, which is Swedish. Mm-hmm. It uh, nearly collapsed in 1970 and nearly collapsed again in 92. And it learned lessons from, from those two near, near misses to the extent that it completely banned uh, bonuses from any banker of any level mm-hmm. in the bank. It focused on service, not sales. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say that is the polar opposite of what RBS was like, um, you know, and, and still is like to some extent. There are very few others. Um, you know, I do also use the cooperative, and generally they're fine. Metro Bank, I have heard good reports of, and I know quite a few people who have who are using that, but I can't use that because I think it's only operating in south of England. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh huh. But yeah, there's there's some sign that 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 some banks are you know deliberately avoiding the policies that uh, led to the collapse of RBS. RBS unfortunately isn't. Mm. Fully, uh, you know, RBS. To be fair to RBS, it, it has made massive changes. Uh, it 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 is uh, restru- restructuring itself in what might ultimately prove to be the right direction. It's interesting. In a, in a much younger and more naive time, I remember having conversations. This is going back to the beginning of Bright Grey, which is a um, insurance company that you know that I was associated with at the start. And I always yes. had this mantra, having having spent quite a lot of time in, time in America, that if you have or if you empower staff to offer amazing service to actually engage with customers how they want to be engaged with then you will make profits and I always used to think that that was a really nice simple way of thinking about it as opposed to what a lot of companies think is how can we make the most profit and we don't really care whether we piss off our staff or we piss off our customers on the way there and even just even now (laughs) 15 years later explaining it like that to me Ultimately, that's what the message coming from Shredded is. Yes, this is a quote from a senior manager in the corporate division of RBS. Manager at RBS told me, both PEF and LEP encourage people to focus on their personal output based on a rigid set of behaviors and objectives imposed from on high, not whether they were delivering to customers. Um, This is the key one. Another ex-senior manager within RBS's corporate banking side said that the performance management system drove him and his colleagues to actively rip off their corporate customers. All that mattered was driving the numbers, delivering results, hitting short-term goals, sweating the assets. We were increasingly run by number crunchers, and we were encouraged to hit our customers with every additional cart charge that we thought we could get away with. <laughs> that included making loans conditional on then ta- taking out interest rate swaps, even though we didn't really understand these products. The view from on high was it didn't really matter if one or two customers walked away 
or if we were to be dogged with complaints later, reputational risk did not get a look in. It turned bankers into double glazing salesmen. That yeah. just really reinforces what I was trying to articulate before. Again, to me, the financial services industry, banking and insurance, still has such a dreadful reputation with the consumer. The yes. only way we can repair this damage is to start engaging with them as they would like to be engaged with. Ian, it's been amazing to talk to you about Shredded this morning. I would encourage everybody who's listening to the Empath podcast today to get hold of the book, either the physical, hard, very large copy that you can hold in your hand or the Kindle version and and read it from cover to cover. It is really a masterclass in how not to run a financial services business. But because of that, you can glean from it all the things that you should really be looking at in order to make a financial services business successful. Before we come to the end of the podcast, Ian, I just want to try and flip things to a a slightly different subject because we've known each other for quite a few years. I've I've discussed uh, insurance products with you and you've written articles about it. But I think you've helped me out quite a bit in my previous roles as uh, marketing director at Bright Gray and Scottish Provident by helping to educate some of my colleagues, some of my um, staff to talk to the media. And this yeah. is this is a service that you offer to all co- all sorts of companies all all through the United Kingdom. Media training, and I think that the the digital world that we live in now, more and more people are realizing the value of talking to the media, not being scared of the media, and working with the media to get positive stories out there. So maybe just in closing in, just give me a little bit of um, background about the services that you offer with your media training and how you might be able to help the financial service professionals listening to this podcast. Okay, thank you, uh, Roger. Basically, I've trained... um, senior managers and middle managers in a wide range of financial services organizations and other organizations in how to handle media interviews. For people who've never actually done a media interview, it can seem very intimidating because I think that, I mean, probably from what I've been saying in the rest of this podcast. That's right. Everybody's listening to this. I'd I'd never want to talk to a journalist again if if they're going to be be as in-depth as Ian's been with the, the RBS people. Yeah, but but I mean, basically, what what I do in the sessions is I I give a broad overview of how journalists operate. You know, I, I try and explain there are different types of journalists. You know, some of whom are, um, you know, some of whom work for trade magazines. Yeah. Some of whom work for a national ma- national newspapers. Some of whom work for broadcasters, and they all have slightly different uh, horizons or level or in you know areas of interest uh-huh. and obviously the the ones in the trademarks are going to have more interest in the nitty-gritty of uh, products and things uh, than the ones in the mainstream or national newspapers or or, lo- or yeah or broadcasters but I, I I then try and put I try you know having explained one or two um, techniques that um, interviewees can can use in interviews uh, to ensure that they are not sort of, uh, tricked into divulging state <laughs> the wrong sort of information, or to ensure that they, you know, are able to get what they see as their core message across about what their product is, about what their company stands for, about um, uh, what, what, whatever the, the core message that they believe they want to get across is. And, and and give them pointers as to you know how they can do this and how they can almost r- rein in um, <laughs> to some extent a journalist who's asking inappropriate or awkward questions. Yeah. But then I do what's called mock interviews, and I I basically will do a ten minute interview from a from a remote location over the phone, 
uh, or you know, it could be in the same office building, but yeah. just not in the same room. Um, pretending to be a journalist, calling in with questions on on an, on a on a set, often on a set scenario, which could be a crisis uh, scenario, or it could just be a new product launch, or it could be whatever. Um, and and ask what I would seem consider to be you know the sorts of questions that uh, an average journalist would ask. And then I also do what's called um, well face to face interviews, which tend to be slightly more in depth. And uh, again, they can be on a, on whatever scenario is appropriate for that client at the time. It could be a change of management, new product launch, a rebranding or or whatever. And you know ask the sort of probing questions that a, a journalist would be likely to ask in a face-to-face uh, scenario. And, and then it all culminates in a sort of appraisal of, of how well or badly I believe that individual uh, person did. And uh, it can be great fun, actually. You know, it sounds hard, but it, it's, it's, it can be fun. I think people do get a lot out of it because they, they once they've been through one of these sessions, they actually hopefully genuinely feel more confident and, you know, less, less nervous, um, more confident they can get their message across when they are in, when they do actually face a real journalist. Yeah, I think that's right. The feedback I always got from people within um, the companies that I work for that went on your training was always that those role play scenarios, especially when you went and sat in a different part of the office, yes. that was the standout moment. That was the thing that gave them the confidence for dealing with the media later on. It was the actual practical stuff. I mean, again, it's, it's like anything, isn't it? Theory's all very well, but if you can give somebody a practice example and a practical exercise to go through it in this case the role play, role play yes, that role play. gives them the that gives them the, the the confidence they need to to take things forward yes I mean to some extent you know as a media trainer when I'm doing those um, those role play interviews you know I, I'm, I'm acting because I'm not I'm having to kind of put myself in the shoes of what a trade magazine journalist would ask or in in that kind of interview uh-huh. and, but being being a journalist who has worked on a wide range of, ti- of sorts of title, including some trademarks, I think um, you know I find that relatively easy to do. Yeah, well, I'm glad I'm glad they find it useful, and I, and I hope they've been able to do some good interviews uh, after after their sessions. Even uh, though I'm not part of that company anymore, I do see those spokespeople that you were uh, trained still out there. So they oh, obviously obviously learned something. Ian, it's been fascinating to talk to you this morning. I'm sure we could have spoken for a lot longer because the story of RBS, the story of what financial services institutions need to do to succeed and to engage customers is such a vast subject, such an interesting subject actually, that uh, we could have probably gone on for at least another hour. But before we go, Yes. I'm sure there's going to be quite a few people out there maybe want to get in touch with you, have yes. a chat with you. What's the best way that people should contact you, Ian? Well, they, they can see me on Twitter at Ian, Ian underscore Fraser. That's one one avenue. But, I mean, I do have a website, which is www.ianfraser.org, and all my contact details are on the contacts page there. Um, so that probably would be the best starting point. If you Google the words Ian Fraser, uh, the top one that comes up should be me, so that helps too. Fantastic. And what I'll do is I'll put links to those contact details and links to your website, and also I'll put a link to the Amazon page for the Shredded book so that if people want to buy it, they can buy it from there. In the show notes of the podcast, which you can find at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash M-P-A-F. That's rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash M-P-A-F. Ian, it's been fascinating to talk to you. I've loved every minute of it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And I hope to catch up with you at some point in the near future for a big coffee or a beer. Me too. It was great talking, Roger. Thanks for listening to the Marketing Protection and Finance Podcast. 
do, please look at the show notes at rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash MPAF for links to the apps and topics and books we discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Simply visit rogeredwards.co.uk forward slash iTunes and leave a review. If you are a provider or advisor or journalist and you have a product, campaign or business model you'd like to talk about, please get in touch. You can be the next guest on the show. And do remember, nothing we talk about on the show is financial advice of any kind. It's all just thoughts and opinions, okay? Okay.